Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Easy Conversations podcast, a podcast about having easy conversations. I'm your host, Furkan Dandia. In this week's episode, I'm excited to welcome Dr. Lena Haji, who is a licensed clinical psychologist and licensed mental health counselor specializing in psychodiagnostic assessment, forensic assessment, dual diagnosis, serious and persistent mental illness, depression, anxiety, personality disorders, and substance abuse treatment. Her clinical experience over the last 20 years includes working with mentally ill and duly diagnosed adults in inpatient and outpatient settings, including correctional facilities, substance abuse, rehabilitation centers, outpatient clinics, psychiatric hospitals, and private practice in four states, including New York, New Jersey, California, and Florida. Her ultimate goal as a psychologist, regardless of population, is to accurately diagnose and identify patient strengths and areas for growth in order to better individualize treatment needs and goals. She was trained at the master's and doctoral level in the assessment and treatment of individuals ranging from mild psychiatric symptoms to those with serious and persistent mental illness, duly diagnosed patients, as well as personality disorder patients and psychopathy. In this episode, Dr. Haji and I talk about the problems with misdiagnosing and labeling people with disorders based on limited perspective and knowledge. Dr. Haji also shares her experience working in forensic psychology and prisons. You can check out her Instagram page at rise underscore psychological underscore services and her website, uh, risepsychological.com. I really hope you enjoy this episode, and if at the end, if you can leave a five-star review, I would truly appreciate it. All right, uh, Dr. Lena Haji, thanks for uh, joining the Easy Conversations podcast. I'm super grateful and, and appreciate you taking the time to have this conversation with me. I'm really excited about some of the stuff we're going to cover today. And uh, before we get started, I want to give you an opportunity to quickly introduce yourself, maybe talk a little bit about what it is that you do. And I believe you're based in Florida. That's correct. That is correct. Um, thank you for having me. I'm always excited to talk about anything mental health related. So super excited to be here. Um, yeah, my name is uh, Dr. Lena Haji. I am a clinical psychologist practicing in Miami, Florida. Um, Let's see, I'm originally from New York and I got a bachelor's degree in psychology in New York and then a master's in forensic psychology in New York. And then I got a master's degree in clinical psychology and then I did my doctorate in clinical psychology with a forensic emphasis. So I went a little nuts with school. I won't talk about school loans, but um, yeah, I've worked mostly in prisons, mostly in correctional, uh, in correctional settings, prisons. I've also worked in rehabs, community mental health, outpatient, psychiatric hospitals, sex offender hospitals. And then recently, a couple of years ago, I started my own forensic and clinical practice. And that's where I am at now. Very cool. So yeah, lots of schooling. Uh, I think we have that in common. <laughs> um, but uh so, so I guess one of the things right off the bat, when I hear about some of the work you do and the people that you're working with, how do you manage your own kind of mental health? And, and you know, there's an aspect of compassion fatigue that we hear about with, with counselors or folks working in, in the psychology field. How do you manage all that for yourself? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I've definitely experienced burnout, even though I didn't want to admit it, you know, because I, I tend to be one of those people that thrives under pressure. So um, I'm, I'm really bad at recognizing burnout. Um, <laughs> you know, I just feel like push through, keep going, you know, um, but I have no problems um, discussing the fact that I have my own therapist. I've always had my own therapist. Um, I've always had a psychiatrist. Um, I've always had a support system in place. I have colleagues who work in the field. You know, there are certain things that you experience in correctional environments that you can't necessarily come home and tell your family about because they're, they're you know, there's, they're violent and they're, some of them are pretty horrific. So thankfully I have friends who also work in the field. Um, for me, sense of humor is huge. Sense of humor is huge. And another huge one for me is exercise. I am a huge, I always have been athletic. For me, it's very, um, it's, it's a way of practicing mindfulness. It's a way of making sure that I'm in the moment. It's a way of addressing my mental and physical health at the same time. So that's really a lot of the ways that I combat, um, you know, burnout and, and compassion fatigue. I make sure that I have things in place and these aren't just sporadic things in place. They're part of my daily structure. I have to hit the gym. I have to, you know, speak to my therapist once a week. I have to have some time with friends. And, and once those be, once I ingrain those, like they become a structured part of my day, mm -hmm. um, they're just automatic. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's important to, to identify those things for sure. And everything you've listed, uh, at least I try to practice those things too, but I guess one of the things I did want to touch on and, and burnout is probably one of those things too, where we don't really understand what it is because it gets thrown around a lot. And, mm -hmm. and this is a, probably a good segue into some of the, the topics we want to cover around misdiagnosis. And you're obviously very passionate about that. Uh, I've seen your videos on Instagram, which really inspired me to reach out to you. Why is it so important for you to debunk some of these terms that get thrown around without people truly understanding what they mean and how they can even impact people on the receiving end. It's well, thank you, first of all, for that. And yes, I am extremely passionate about it. I mean, sometimes I make these videos for Instagram or YouTube, and I, I'm just kind of like venting to myself. And then I realize, oh, wow, you know, people have people give me such positive feedback. And it's like, oh, I'm not just talking to myself. That's good. Yeah. Um, I think the main reason, and I actually didn't realize this until pretty later on in my career, one of the reasons I'm so passionate about misdiagnosis was because I was misdiagnosed myself um, as a child. Um, so a little bit of self-disclosure, when I was nine years old, I stopped eating. I just stopped eating. And the reason I stopped eating was because I thought that something was stuck in my throat. I was only nine. I thought something was stuck in my throat and that I couldn't swallow. And, um, you know, my, my parents took me to pediatricians and neurologists and cardiologists, and they went so far to, to stick a camera down my throat to make sure nothing was actually stuck. And long story short, it turns out that it was anxiety. It was conversion disorder. My parents had been going through some kind of tumultuous relationship. And um, the, the, a, a psychiatrist or a psychologist, you know, said to my mom, um, she's so stressed and so anxious by the home situation that she's somaticizing and she feels like she can't swallow. Mm -hmm. And which is, you know, the reason I became a psychologist because it was the first time I felt heard and understood. 
Um, but I had been accused of being anorexic, wanting to be skinny for gymnastics. I had been yelled at by a pediatrician who threw a pretzel at me and told me, eat this. Um, I had been told I was attention seeking. I mean, all sorts of horrible things. And so I went through that experience and I was later, uh, you know, misdiagnosed multiple times in my life. And so I wonder, you know, when people have a physical ailment and they go to a physical doctor, uh, you know, a, a physician, a medical doctor, you know, there's, there's a lot that's usually done to, to find the etiology and the origin of something. For example, if you go to a doctor and you say, I have headaches, they're going to try and figure out, is it a migraine? Is it a, a stress headache? Is it a brain tumor? What is causing the headache? And then that dictates the treatment. Yeah. But I don't think we take that as seriously in mental health. We kind of just go, oh, you're, 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 you're depressed or you have anxiety. And so for me, diagnosis is so important because if we're not getting the accurate diagnosis, we're not getting the subsequent accurate treatment. And, and, and I see it all the time, particularly in correctional settings where the resources are poor and a lot of the mental health practitioners are poorly trained. Um, and I see people get misdiagnosed as bipolar or narcissistic or psychopathic, antisocial, schizophrenic, you name it. And yeah. then you see them suffer the consequences of these treatments and meds and interventions that are not only not efficient, but they're draining. Mm -hmm. It's frustrating for the patient. So yeah. that really, it's so it's frustrating for everyone. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I can definitely appreciate that. And I guess what, what I tend to see now, and, and this may be just my experience, but a lot of these terms have been used so often now that people are just picking them up and throwing them around, right? And, and I think you see someone, I think you talked about it uh, in the video you put out today, around someone being moody and and people will say oh well you know he or she is bipolar without fully understanding what well first of all we shouldn't be diagnosing other people but you know i think we all ex maybe display and i've said this before certain um tendencies within the disorders but that doesn't mean we are that disorder so what are your thoughts around that and and how can people become more educated before they use these terms and label others. Yeah, so that's the other thing. Like in one way, social media and all this access to information has been so fantastic because it's helped get rid of a lot of the stigma. It's helped to spread awareness. It's helped to, you know, let people know that they're not alone and that other people suffer from the same things that they suffer from. And I think that is absolutely fantastic. But the flip side of that is the insane amount of misinformation out there and people who are not qualified to talk about certain things. I mean, I would never talk about something like cancer. I'm not that kind of doctor. I would, I would say, I would refer and say, please go to a medical doctor, go to a physician. And so I don't know why people think that with mental health, it's, it's, it's just, you can just talk about it because you feel like talking about it. We're doing ourselves a disservice. Um, so that's the, that's one of the main issues. And, and like you said, this overutilization of, you know, these trendy terms, like Lately, I've heard a lot about narcissism or boundaries or gaslighting, you know, and people grab onto these terms and they just run with them without even doing their due diligence and finding out what do these terms really mean? Mm -hmm. And I have people saying, you know, oh, you know, my ex-boyfriend is a narcissist. And then you explore a little more and it's like, well, he lied to you, but he's not a narcissist. Like narcissistic personality disorder is actually very rare 
and very pathological. Mm -hmm. So that's just one example of how people take these very trendy mental health terms and they run with them. And that results in a lot of misinformation, more misdiagnosis, over pathologizing. And it's, it's, it's quite frankly, it, it's, it's dangerous. Really, mm -hmm. dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you used a perfect example, like narcissism, for example, I've heard that one quite a bit too. Um, whether it's someone describing their ex-partner or a friend they're upset with. So I guess you, to probably debunk it a little bit, what are certain qualities of a narcissistic individual just for listeners that are interested in, you know, because I mean, you do a Google search, you might get something, but you may not get the right answer. So what are some of those characteristics? So narcissistic personality disorder is, first of all, it's characterological in nature, which means it is a pervasive pattern, right? It's not just there being an a-hole every now and then, or there being an a-hole, excuse my language, to just one person. It's a pervasive pattern that has happened across their lifetimes, across multiple relationships, across multiple settings, right? So that's the first thing we need to look at when we look at a narcissist. If he's just mean to his mother or she's just mean to her boyfriend, that's not narcissistic. That's probably more signs of a toxic relationship or some other underlying issue. A true narcissist is gonna have this pervasive pattern usually since childhood or adolescence. And it involves, you know, excessive need for admiration all the time. I mean, all the time, you know, those people that they, you tell them a story and they have to make it about themselves or they, they lock pathological lying and, you know, oh, you met Shaquille O'Neal. Well, I met LeBron James and you just know that it's a lie, but they have to like one up it. That's one sign. Uh, obsessions with kind of money and power and control and just, you know, lying, uh, lack of empathy, lack of remorse. They're really incapable of putting themselves in another person's perspective or another person's shoes. And again, this is like almost all the time, you mm -hmm. know, and it, it's very pervasive is the key word. That's what a real narcissistic a person with narcissistic personality disorder presents as. So it's not just somebody who's cheating and lying or, or has a big ego. It's, it's really a cluster of symptoms that are unshakable, if mm -hmm. you will. And they have, yeah. no they have no insight. For sure, for sure. And, I, you know, based on what you've explained, what I gather is it's fairly complex too, right? Like quite often we will see someone from one lens. We, we don't see them holistically. So it's hard for us to be like, oh, this person's narcissistic. I think the one thing that also jumps out for me, and, and you alluded to earlier, is the lack of empathy. And that could be a telltale, right? Sign like quite often when you see someone who just doesn't have the empathy. And, and you can pick up a lot from just that. Right, absolutely. But this lack of empathy would have to, again, across different uh uh, relationships for so sure if they're if they're they lack empathy with their partner but they seem to be extremely empathic or empathetic towards their mother or towards their children they probably don't meet criteria for narcissistic personality personality disorder because a true narcissist simply doesn't have that capacity at all and it could be other things besides narcissism it could be psychopathy which is you know laymen very don't have a very good understanding of psychopathy nor do i blame them. It could be antisocial personality disorder. It could be even something less egregious. It could be 
autism. It could be a million different things. And so just because somebody lacks empathy towards someone does not automatically make them a narcissist. And that's one of the areas where it's like, wait, hold on. You know, people are so quick to label or again, same with like gaslighting or something, you know, people, yeah. we, we're humans, we're humans. We lie all the time. We don't want to admit it, but we lie all the time. You know, even if they're white lies, that doesn't mean you're, you're, you're subjected to gaslighting, right? You've just been lied to, you know, yeah. gaslighting is on a whole nother level. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I'm glad you went there because that's another term that drives me nuts because it gets, again, thrown around a lot without fully understanding what it is. And I think I, I could be wrong here, but a person that's accusing someone of gaslighting could also be gaslighting. And that's yeah. something we need to be aware of before we we make these claims. But what is truly gaslighting, if, if you don't mind, again, for the listeners to expanding on on what no, not at all. And I should also point out that, and I think I made a video about this, gaslighting is very much a mainstream term. It's not a clinical term. I never heard it in any of my schooling. It's not yeah. in the, you know, it's not in the DSM-5. I never read it in any of my textbooks. It's very mainstream. Yes. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's not associated with any personality, any kind of psychiatric or personality disorder. From what I understand, gaslighting is not just kind of excessive lying to someone it's having somebody question their own sanity and their own perception of reality right so somebody saying i never said that knowing that they did but repeatedly again i never said that or i never did that or you know you're exaggerating you're 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 creating stuff in your head to the point where there's a manipulative component there's mm -hmm. a volitional manipulative component to have the person in question doubt their own sanity and doubt their own perceptions. That's what true gaslighting is. Mm -hmm. So again, you know, being lied to or being, uh, you know, being just in a not reciprocal relationship does not entail gaslighting. Right. People have fun with that one. <laughs> yeah. And you're right. It's, it's not, something that's classified as a disorder and to your point it's not in the dsm-5 i think uh what i've at least heard or experienced is quite often gaslighting is prominent in in romantic relationships mm -hmm. you don't typically see that in in friendships or other you could maybe see it in parental relationships where there is maybe some manipulation happening but what have you seen in your work i think you're right i think it's mostly prevalent in a in any kind of quote-unquote toxic relationship where there's a need for manipulation a need for power and control and you tend to see that probably more in romantic or intimate relationships than you do in friendships or mentorships or any kind of parental relationship although you do have some you know uh par parents and and other you know type of relationships that can be extremely toxic, so to speak, but there, the manipulation factor is really key here. Um, and, and you see that a lot in dysfunctional intimate relationships where one partner is trying to control the other. That's where, that's where, where I've seen it the more, the most, uh, you know, very domestic violence kind of relationships, um, emotional abuse, things of that nature. Yeah. 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 And control is probably the key word in that aspect is where one partner, to your point, is trying to control the relationship or even the person for that matter. Right. Exactly. Um, but another overutilized 
term. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I guess in terms of overutilized terms, the last one I wanted to cover with you was bipolar, <clears throat> because that is a disorder. But again, the word gets thrown around and people often get labeled. And I alluded to it earlier in your video, you mentioned even just mood swings and someone will say, well, you know, he or she is bipolar. What are your thoughts on that? So that one, that's one that drives me particularly nuts because I've seen it so over pathologized and so misdiagnosed. And I don't know where this idea came from that bipolar disorder stems from mood swings. And I'm not saying people with bipolar disorder cannot be subjected to mood swings, but that is not the diagnostic criteria for bipolar disorder. Bipolar disorder First and foremost, it's an organic disorder. It's in, you know, it's people with bipolar disorder are neurologically different than people who don't have bipolar disorder. Um, you know, they the, the way that their brain produces different kinds of chemicals is just completely different. So bipolar disorder is not, you know, I was happy this morning. I, I, I get this a lot in, in, in the inmate population I work with, right? So like an inmate will tell me I'm bipolar and I'll say, well, what makes you say that? Well, you know, I wake up in the morning and I'm in a really good mood. And then in the afternoon, the mail comes and my girl didn't write me. And then I'm super angry. And I'm like, <laughs> dude, that's not bipolar disorder. That's not even close. That's called life. That's, yeah. I hate to be harsh, but that's called life. You got, you, there's, there's a situation and a stressor. You didn't get what you wanted and you have a low frustration tolerance and now you're mad. That has nothing to do with bipolar disorder. Neither do mood swings, you yeah. know? I mean, we're humans. We all have mood swings where we're irritable at some point. True bipolar disorder involves a manic episode and a depressive episode and a manic episode is really somebody who almost presents as high and euphoric mm. without a substance they, these are people who have decreased need for sleep uh flight of ideas they they're getting a lot of ideas they have mm -hmm. they talk pressured they have um, a grandiose sense of self where they think they can kind of conquer the world. They tend to engage in high risk behaviors, you know, maybe mm. jump out of an airplane or yeah, they might use drugs or, you know, drive really fast on the highway. And mm. that manic episode has to last at least four days. And that is what true mania, and it can also involve psychosis where they can start hearing voices or seeing things or having delusional thought content that maybe they are, have special powers mm -hmm. or that they you know, are sent to us by God, things of that nature. And that is what true mania is. And then there's the flip side, which is a depressive episode. And where a lot of us are more familiar with what depression is, you know, sad mood, crying, uh, lack of motivation, irritability, difficulty concentrating, uh, changes in appetite and sleep disturbance. And that depressive episode has to last two weeks. So when you put it in diagnostic context, context, excuse me, context, it really has nothing to do with mood swings because it's a discrete period lasting at least four days and another discrete period lasting at least two weeks. So it has nothing to do with mood swings. So I don't know where that came from, but yeah, very thrown around a lot, very, very thrown around and, and completely overdiagnosed. Yeah, yeah, I guess uh, just to probably understand a bit better in those manic episodes, is there any component of obsession with something? Like, do people get mania, like just overly just being obsessed with something? I, I find like sometimes that's what creates the manic episode is the obsession. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I guess it's, it's, is it the chicken or the egg, right? But, yeah. um, you know, like a lot of people with true bipolar disorder, they might have uh, obsessions with, for example, gambling, right? So they might engage in this high risk behavior, because let's be honest, gambling is high risk, even though mm-hmm. we like to think it's not. And they might spend two, three, four days in a casino becoming obsessed with winning or something like that. Or um, yeah, it could, it, it could turn into obsessive you know, obsessions can be anything. It can be a human being. It could be gambling. It could be driving fast. It could be, you know, having to get something done. There's a really interesting book by Dr. Jameson called An Unquiet Mind. I don't know if you've um, heard of it, but she's a psychologist who has bipolar disorder. And she talked about in this book, it's a great book, An Unquiet Mind. She talks about in this book how when she finally admitted to herself that she had bipolar disorder and needed medication. Um, And that's the first line of treatment for bipolar disorder is medication, mood stabilizing medication. That it was almost, she she almost had to grieve saying goodbye to her manic episodes because her manic episodes served her well when she was doing her PhD, Mm. because she said she would, she would finish projects in three days. She would become obsessed with a project or a paper or her dissertation or whatever it was at the time that she was working on. And the mania assisted her, obviously, because she was up and she had energy and she had focus and she had drive. And she almost she talked about how she grieved saying goodbye to these manic episodes that she found in many ways very very useful. And you see that a lot in bipolar patients because mania, there's a sense of euphoria. It's Mm -hmm. almost like being on cocaine or being on meth where you're feeling on top of the world. So a lot of the problem with bipolar patients is they won't, they're not medication adherent. There'll be medication adherent during a depressive phase, but they won't be medication adherent during a manic phase because a manic phase feels good, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the obsession can definitely be part of that for sure. And then when you come down from that, then it's, it's that depressive, depressive phase that you're talking about that can last up to two weeks. It can last more than two weeks. It ha- it's usually a minimum of two weeks. It can be, it's a, like a downward spiral crash. You know, mm-hmm. I've had patients that they will not take medication unless they're quote unquote crashing from mania into depression. Cause it feels horrible. It's like coming off of a high mm-hmm. and then that's that then they're motivated to say okay something's wrong i need to take my medication yeah Um, yeah Yeah. because depression feels awful but mania doesn't necessarily feel awful Mm. yeah no i could see that for sure and i guess along those lines we've talked about misdiagnosis but there's also the component of self-diagnosis and i see that quite a bit with uh we've touched on depression but also anxiety where people will say oh you know, I have depression or I have anxiety or I have OCD or I have this, I have that. (laughs) What are your thoughts on that? Because I feel like people often either use that to excuse their behavior or, I mean, there's a positive side to it too, because for people it's, it's being able to have an answer, which can explain a lot of things. But a lot of the times I see it's a form of, well, you know, I have this, that's why I'm behaving this way. So What are your thoughts with regards to the self-diagnosis? I mean, that's such a good question for Khan because I see it all the time. And I, one of my biggest like fights in life is that mental illness almost never makes you do something right. There's this idea that, oh, it's not my fault. I was depressed. It's not my fault. I was anxious. It's not my fault. I was psychotic. And I I do this for a living. You know, I, I do not guilty by reason of insanity and competency evaluations for the court all the time. Mm. 
And not guilty by reason of insanity only gets brought up less than 1% of the time. And out of that 1%, only 1% of that 1% is only is usually found not guilty by reason of insanity, which just tells you how absolutely rare it is to find an, a causal link between mental illness and behavior. And so I agree with you. I think people have kind of taken this, you know, soft way out of like, you know, well, I, you know, I had anxiety, so I had to miss the test. Well, okay, maybe you did have anxiety, but the treatment of the treatment of choice for anxiety is to go through it, right? Exposure therapy. So if you yeah. are having anxiety, the best way to, and, and I, and I'm not, I, I don't want to come off as unempathetic mm -hmm. because I've had my own struggles with anxiety, panic attacks. I used to have debilitating panic attacks that where I would end up in the ER and depression. So I completely understand it. What I'm saying is that a lot of mental health symptoms are an explanation. They're not an excuse, mm -hmm. right? And there's a danger in self-diagnosis, especially when it comes to anxiety, because as humans, we are built to respond to things with fear. That's how we stay alive, right? Okay. Our amygdala, we have a startle response. If somebody comes by us and says, boo, we startle, That's, that, that, that serves a purpose. It's yeah. to protect us as, as animals, right? Now, of course, when you have anxiety, that is dysregulated. Um, and, and, it, and again, anxiety can be absolutely debilitating. I don't take that away from anyone. However, it, anxiety doesn't quote unquote, cause you to do things, you know? Right. And I think it depends a lot on the symptoms and the, and, and everybody's different. And, uh, and there's so many factors that come around that. And of course, if, if you're feeling sad or blue, or you're feeling like you're having a lot more symptoms of fear or stress or worry and you just walk into a therapist's office and say I have anxiety I have depression I want to kind of get a handle on this there's nothing wrong with that I'm not mm -hmm. saying that I'm saying when it gets to a little bit of more complex type of diagnoses it's really important to be properly properly diagnosed right um, and self-diagnosis is so dangerous again it's the same with medical stuff if I had a stomachache, I wouldn't just go well that's definitely heartburn you know I would go you know is this is this an ulcer? Is this heartburn? Is this stomach cancer? Is this a kidney stone? I mean, there's a million things. So why do we not look at mental health the same way? What is going on? What is the cause? What is the etiology before right. we go ahead and fix ourselves? Yeah, no, fair enough. And in and, and most cases, uh, you know, I think we all kind of will experience anxious thoughts or, or depressive thoughts, and, and they might be mild in nature. But by self-diagnosing, we might even we might put ourselves deeper in the hole because we don't fully appreciate that the mild form is acceptable. It's okay. There's nothing wrong with it. But now we've kind of created the story in our mind and and make made it worse. I think at least. Oh, absolutely. And I think that that's a trend that we're seeing a lot with a lot of young people where they over pathologize, mm -hmm. you know, and so I've had young adolescents say, well, I have anxiety. And so I couldn't go to school. And it's like, no, everybody experiences anxiety. It's part of life. Like you said, everybody experiences bad days, good days, depression, you know, and there's this idea floating around that like, we need to, we need to start avoiding engaging in avoidance of stuff because of mental health symptoms, mm -hmm. which is absolutely not the treatment way to go. I mean, I'm not discounting somebody who's really going through a hard time, some grief or some psychosis or 
having suicidal thoughts. I'm not saying there's some things that those people shouldn't avoid in order to get help. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But like you talked about the kind of more mild, moderate level of anxiety, avoidance is the worst thing you can do. And I know that that came up a lot with the whole Naomi Osaka, you know, and yeah. uh, Simone Biles when they kind of, you know, there was this back and forth of like, you're an Olympic athlete, you should know, and you should be able to push through. And part of me, I can't talk about those girls because I, I've never met them and I don't know at all what they were going through. Right. But part of me was scared that it was going to send this message of like, um, yeah, I have an exam tomorrow, but I'm just going to blame it on my mental health and not go. And it's like, no, 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 no. Now we're really doing everybody a disservice because mm -hmm. we don't know what those girls were going through. We don't truly know what it's so easy to say. I need a mental health day. What does that mean? I need a mental health day every day to be perfectly honest. You know, yeah, yeah. I would like to just crawl in my bed sometimes for a week and say, I don't feel like doing this, but that's not how you become a better functioning more well-rounded human being you know yeah. avoidance is not the answer well and and yeah and i think that's what i was alluding to is uh, through avoidance we are basically digging ourselves a bigger hole like in your example if you're having a tough day and you just crawl into bed for a few days guess what your depression is going to get worse right so so yeah i think we need to be mindful of that and, and just be mindful of there's different levels that we can experience and to your point earlier is really seeking the help and asking the professionals that can help us in those spaces um and then kind of shifting gears here i know you touched on it briefly but what i really wanted to explore and understand uh, as we get to the closer to the end here but forensic psychology what does that mean and what does that look like especially in the field you're working in with inmates and all that so forensic psychology is really the intersection between clinical psychology and the law. And that sounds rather broad because it is actually pretty broad. Mm -hmm. So forensic psychology has to do with any legal question that would be answered by clinical psychological, by clinical psychological information. So uh, a lot of people think that working in prisons in forensic is forensic psychology. And in a way it kind of is, but that's more correctional psychology. You know, you're dealing with, um, kind of triaging which inmates need mental health, which ones don't, which need, mm. needs meds, which needs don't. Forensic psychology is more, um, again, answering the legal question. So for example, I get a lot of uh, not guilty by reason of insanity evaluation. So I have to take my clinical knowledge and apply that to this legal question. Is this person not guilty by reason of insanity? Insanity is a legal term. It's not a clinical term. Yeah. So I have to take clinical information and translate it into legalese, if you will. Another example is competency evaluations. Is this person competent to stand trial? Do they even understand the charges against them? So measuring their IQ, measuring their knowledge base, do they understand what they're being charged with, what the possible penalties are? Other examples are violence risk assessments and mm. sex offender assessments. So if somebody's coming out of prison, I might get a call from the probation officer. I need a sex offender assessment. What are the chances? And of course, we're only human when we cannot actually predict future behavior, but we can use empirical actuarial tools in place, te psych testing, to give a, a roundabout um, number 
this guy has about a five to 7% chance of recidivating. This guy has about a 25% chance of recidivating. So that's giving more information to the legal system to make an informed decision based on clinical data. There's also child custody evaluations, uh, police psychology, there's um, juvenile psychological evaluations for placement. Is this juvenile better off in prison or is he better off in treatment? What kind of treatment? So that's really what forensic psychology is. Again, mm -hmm. just in clinical data to answer a legal question. Yeah, okay, fair enough. And, and help me understand, like, how are you able to actually, um, this is the engineer in me jumping out, but how are you <laughs> able to assign an actual percentage though? Like, I mean, that's, that should be fairly complicated. You, it is it is fairly complicated, but you you know I have a PsyD which is very clinical patient oriented versus a PhD which is very research oriented. I didn't do a PhD because me and research don't get along. It sounds like you probably would do better with a PhD if you're smart with engineering. But there are actual so what 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 happens is there are actual actuarial tools and actuarial meaning they've gathered data from tons of past sex offenders. Um, there's one called the static 99 and one called the stable 2007. And okay. they've normed, they've normed these, um, these tests on al already on a bunch of data, like a ton of data, enough to have a control group and enough to have a randomized mm -hmm. trial. And they look at everything from contact offenses, female victims, male victims, child pornography, violent rapes, stranger rapes. And they've taken all this data and they've studied God bless these psychologists who do this because I couldn't do it. And they've studied these people um, and seen the rate of recidivism. And so we have a norm sample that we take, then we take into account, let's say I have a sex offender who uh, he committed one rape at age 17 on an underage girl. I take all of those factors. It was a female victim. She was underage. He was over the age of 18. It was a violent rape. Uh, was he intoxicated? Was he not intoxicated? And you take all those kind of demographic and crime data and you put it into these tests and it literally spits out a number of mm. like compared to the norm sample and based on his past behavior and his clinical profile, he is likely to reoffend at a five to 7% rate. And these measures are amazing because they, they're accurate and they, they're, they work in a court of law. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that is <laughs> fascinating stuff. So, so, okay, so you've explained the forensic side. And then what about the correctional side? How does that fit in? So the correctional side is more, I would say, treatment oriented. So for example, I worked in prisons as a master's level clinician, and then as a psychologist, and then I was clinical director of um, a prison, which housed the 500 worst um, worst quote unquote inmates in the state of Florida. So these were like very high psychopathic inmates, high ranking gang members, murderers, rapists. These were guys who didn't just commit offenses in community. These were guys who also continued to commit offenses while incarcerated. So they needed to be, yeah, like shanking their cellmate, all that great stuff we see on, you know, crime shows. I was in charge of those guys. So my typical day would look like I would come in and the first thing I would do is um, suicide risk assessments. You know, who, who was on suicide risk watch the night before. Uh, you have a lot of secondary gain in prisons, guys pretending they're suicidal so that they, uh, you know, maybe they owe money for heroin on the yard or there's a gang hit on them or so they're a sex offender and they wanna hide. So 90% of my job was kind of weeding through BS and seeing who was actually a risk of suicide and who was yeah. just kind of using mental health for secondary gain. 
And then I was responsible for about 12 master's level therapists, God bless them all. Um, and just making sure that they were seeing their patients, that they were doing proper interventions and that they were, you know, documenting everything. Cause of course, documenting is huge. Uh, a lot of these prisons care more about documenting liabilities than actual liabilities. It's the yeah. sad truth, but we can have a whole other podcast about that. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, having treatment team with a psychiatrist, with a nurse, with a therapist, and kind of talking about our more problematic patients, either behavioral problems or psychotic patients, seeing if they needed different levels of care and, uh, um, you know, all of that, all of doing all that in an eight hour day, meanwhile, getting interrupted by constant crisis. This guy's trying to hang himself or he's pretending to hang himself. This guy just stabbed another guy. This guy's super high. He smuggled in some drugs and now he's seeing things. So I enjoyed that work environment for a very long time. It was exciting. It was go, go, go. It was working under pressure. It was crisis all the time. Um, but back to your very first point of self-care, I really got to a place where it was like, I've done this for almost 20 years. I don't have to live in prison, you know, forever. And so I transitioned more from correctional to forensic, but that's more what correctional psychology is. It's more treatment oriented. Okay. Okay. No, that's, uh, yeah. Sounds like a lot of work, but, uh, yeah, no, God bless you too, then. <laughs> well, no, uh, Lena, thank you so much for this. Sure. This has been great. I've, I've uh, learned so much myself, uh, if you can't tell, but I definitely uh, wanted to nerd out more, but uh, we're running out of time. So thank you again. And uh, before we end things, for, for listeners that want to get a hold of you or find you online, what are some ways they can do that, uh, whether it's social media or just online? Sure. Um, well, thank you again for having me. As you can tell, I can go on and on forever. Uh, I have an Instagram page. It's rise underscore psychological underscore underscore services. Um, I have a YouTube channel, which is the same. Everything is under rise psychological services. And um, my website has some cool webinars on it and some more information. And that is www.risepsychological.com. So yeah, definitely check me out. I can talk psych with anybody at any time. <laughs> All right. No, thank you again. I appreciate it. That's the end of the episode. Thank you again for tuning in and until next week.